2 Corinthians chapter number 1. I'd like to read just a few verses, and uh, we'll be preaching out of verse number 10, but I'd like to read beginning in verse number 8. Now, the Word of God says this. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about some of the things that they in their ministry have been through. And he says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. Now listen to verse 10 carefully. Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. Let's read verse 10 once more. Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Word would be powerful this morning in this place, in the ears and hearts of those under the sound of my voice. Lord, I confess myself before heaven and before these that I am insufficient for the task at hand. Lord, no doubt in a room this size there are folks in here that need to hear the precious truth of Your Gospel, that You love them, that You'll save them, that you're interested in them, that not yesterday and not tomorrow, but that today is the day of salvation. And I pray, Father, that you would have preeminence in their hearts as the Word of God is preached. And Lord, there may be some in our midst that are discouraged and need to be uplifted, some that are haughty and need to be abased. Lord, I'm just insufficient for all this. Lord, you're all sufficient. Your Word is sufficient. So I pray that your Word would have free reign and course and that your Spirit would have liberty this morning to work in hearts for Your glory. Lord, I love You and I thank You for loving me. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought, Delivered from so great a death. Or if you want a different title, you might like this one, A Threefold Deliverance Through Jesus Christ. Notice carefully what Paul says in verse number 10. Speaking of what God has done in their life, he says, God which raiseth the dead. Let me just pause there and say this, that He is the only God that there is. But if there were a thousand gods, He'd still be the only God that could raise the dead. Amen? And not only is He able to do that, capable of doing that, but He desires to do that. He is willing to do that. God has a long track record of raising the dead. In fact, one of these days, He's going to raise the dead again. And uh, He has the ability to raise the deadness of your life into new life, that you might have new life in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul's talking about God, which raiseth the dead, I think he is speaking with authority that God has the ability and desire and interest in doing this. So he says, this God, which raiseth the dead, this is the one we're trusting in. And then he gives three proofs that he has, both historical and experiential and prophetic, scriptural. He says in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. Now, in verse 10, Paul references three different time periods and says that in all three of these time periods, God delivers those that put their faith in Him. He says that in our past, the Lord has delivered us from so great a death. And then he says He doth deliver us in the present. And then he says we trust that He will yet deliver us one day. Can I say a few words to you before we get into the preaching? Let me say, number one, 
that God is not bound by time. You might have some things in your past that you can't reach back into your past and deal with. Some mistakes that you've made, some things that you've done, some choices that you made, some paths that you've taken. And they are beyond your reach to rectify. You cannot go back to them. You're stuck in the present. Can I tell you that God can deal with those things in our past? You might have some things in your present right now that you just can't get a handle on. I'll tell you this, there are things beyond our control in this life. There are some things, and how many of you out there, and let's be honest, it's time to be honest in the house of God. How many of y'all like to be in control? Anybody? Just a few folks? I got news for you, and I don't have to teach you this because life teaches us this. There are some things that we just cannot control. Uh, right now, we're having uh, some nice weather. Somebody say amen to that. Well, I love it, man. I, I hope we just fool winter and just move right on past it. That, that'd suit me just fine. There have been years in the past when... Uh, our weather was not quite as good. I remember a few years ago, it feels like it was right when I started pastoring, but I'm not sure exactly. But I remember we had one winter, Brother Bill, where it was like every Friday, Saturday, it snowed. I, I mean, just like clockwork. And long about Monday, sun would come out, everything would smooth off, melt off, everything would be fine. And everybody would go about, they'd go to work, they'd go to Dollywood, they'd go do whatever. Then come Friday and Saturday, it'd snow again. And it seemed like every Saturday night I was having to watch the weather and people called me, Preacher, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And it was frustrating because I got news for you. you got seven days in the week and only one of them Sunday. Amen? So uh, they, you better make them count. Somebody say amen to that. And it was frustrating. I found this. All my frustration, I just learned taking in stride for this reason. I'd get tore up. I'd get frustrated. I could lose sleep. I could lose hair. But it didn't change what the weather was going to do. Uh, by the same token, we got this good weather right now, and you hear people saying things like, well, don't jinx it. i got news for you. It ain't about you jinxing it or me jinxing it. The weather's going to be what God wants it to be, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, the weather is one of those things that's beyond our control. Other people oftentimes are beyond our control. You ever met somebody that you loved them, but you just wanted to strangle them? You know, I know people like that. I pastor people. I ain't going to tell you who, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> But they're just people. You love them, you care about them, but you see the mistakes they make, the directions they go, and you just you, somehow you want to shake them and get them to do the right thing. But the truth is, people are beyond your control oftentimes. There are some things you can't control about your present. Let me tell you something. If you're a lost person here today, you can't control your sin nature. Now, you might be able to control certain sins. I won't do this, I won't do that. But at the end of the day, it is natural for a person that does not know the Lord Jesus to live in sin. That's why it's just as natural as a pig is to the slop. It's, it's just as natural as a bird is to the air. I mean, that's the environment that a lost person lives in. That's who he is by nature. But can I tell you that Jesus Christ can change your present condition? He's able to do that. And then, of course, none of us can lay hold on the future. We have no clue what may happen. No idea what may... Can I ask you something? And this isn't a political statement. I mean, this is just... I think everybody can understand this. Ten years ago... Did you think that the term President Donald Trump would ever come out of your mouth ten years ago? And that's not, listen, you may love him, you may hate him, I mean, I'm not, that's not a political statement. I'm just merely saying, who could have guessed we'd be where we are today? Nobody could have guessed that. Nobody could have planned for that. Same thing is true for the small things in our life. You, may, you don't know what tomorrow may hold for you. Listen, you may have walked into this church house today just as healthy as an ox, able to go and do anything that you want to do, and you may be laying down in the hospital tomorrow. You don't know. We have no control over the future. But can I tell you something? Jesus, 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God that inhabiteth eternity, and He is able to deal with your future. There are three deliverances that are spoken of here. And I want to say a word about each of them. We're going to be in a few different places in Scripture, so you've got to get your turning finger ready, lick it or whatever you've got to do to, to be ready. But I want to say a few words about our past deliverance. I want to say a few words about our present deliverance. And then in closing, I want to say a few words about our promised deliverance that is to come. Now, this is interesting. Sometimes in your Bible, you'll find that the Word of God says that we have been saved. You'll find it over and over. We have been passed in saved. There are times you'll find in the Bible, it'll talk about the fact that we are being saved right now. And some folks say, well, preacher, I thought I was already saved. Well, that's true. You are already saved. But you are also being saved at this moment. God is presently working in your life, His will and His effectual working. And then the Bible talks about a future time when we will be saved. People sometimes wonder about that. They say, well, preacher, does that mean I'm not saved right now, that I've got to press on and hold on until the end if I'm going to be saved? No. There is a past work of deliverance God has done. There is a present work of deliverance God is doing in the life of a saved person. And then there is a promised future prophetic uh, working of deliverance that God will do one day according to the truth of His Word. I want you to notice these three things very quickly. Now, let me say that God's past deliverance took place in a sense, on the cross of Calvary. Now, I was saved on December 1st, 1997. If I had died on November 31st, uh, 1997, I would have died and went to hell. But uh, on December 1st, 1997, I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I trusted in Him, and He saved me by His grace. I did not save me. I didn't help save me. I didn't help God save me. I just placed my faith in Him. He had a desire to save me, and I allowed Him to save me. And since that day, December 1st, 1997, I have been eternally secure and saved by the grace of God. In that time, I have made a lot of mistakes. In that time, I have lived out of the will of God. In that time, I have behaved in a way at times where if someone was to look at my life, they wouldn't think the last thing they would have thought I was was a Christian saved by God's grace. It's part of the reason I have a problem with this idea of the perseverance of the saints. And I, and I know what people mean when they say it. And I, and I understand there is a reality that every man that's in Christ is a new creature in Christ Jesus. Amen? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But there are two problems I have with this concept that if a person ever backslides, it's because they weren't saved in the first place. And that's what they mean when they talk about, when the Calvinist talks about perseverance of the saints, that's what they mean. That if a person is uh, ever backslides, it means they weren't saved in the first place. There's a few problems I have with that. One of them has to do with my life. Because there's been times when I've lived wrong, when I've done wrong, when there was nothing discernibly Christian about the way I was behaving. I never had to get resaved. I was already saved by God's grace. I have some theological problems with that. Now, listen, I wish I could take the time. I don't have the time. But suffice it to say that the only kind of life that God has is eternal life. So if He gave you life, He gave you eternal life. And we could go through passage after passage about how, you know, I'll never pluck thee, uh, no man shall pluck thee out of my hand, and so on and so forth. But there are a lot of scriptural theological reasons. But then there are some, we might say, scriptural historic reasons. Man, you can't look at the life of Peter and tell me that a born-again believer can't backslide. You see Peter at times in his life living in a way he was cursing the name of Christ. He was spitting upon the thought of the Savior. 
And he was saved. You say, how do you know that? Because uh, the Lord said, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have ye, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. In other words, what he was saying is, Peter, you're one of mine. And I've prayed for you. And I've prayed that when you come out on the other side of that sifting floor... You're going to be stronger in faith, and you're going to strengthen the brethren. You could look at Peter. You could look at David. You could even look at the life of Paul. A lot of people think Paul was perfect, but there was a time in Paul's life when the Holy Ghost said, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And he did, and he paid a dear price for it. What I'm saying is this. I have a problem with this concept that, well, if a person backslides, they never was saved. Now, I will say this. If a person has never had any evidence of God in their life, I think that's a good indication they're not saved. If a person has never had a walk with the Lord, if a person has never had a moment when they placed their faith in Christ and never had a moment when they, they spent time with the Lord and has never had a walk with Christ, that's a pretty good indication a man's never been saved. But a person can get backslidden, do wrong and sin and do unrighteously. God doesn't throw them away. It has already been settled. He has already delivered them. So it took place on Calvary, but it was made effectual in my life on December 1st, 1997. Can I ask you this question? Has it ever been made real in your life? Can you point to a time? Now, I remember a lot of things about the day I got saved. It was a Monday evening. It was about 7.30. It was, as I've already said, December 1st, 1997. I remember the place that I was standing. In fact, up in my office upstairs, I've got a big square of carpet that was the piece of carpet I knelt down on, and I prayed, and I asked God to save me. You say, Preacher, why do you keep that? Is that some kind of lucky charm? No, that's just a reminder of what God did for me. There's nothing special about that carpet except that was the place that I can take the devil back to every time that he tries to assault and persecute and invade my mind and say, I remember on this day I knelt down, I gave Christ my heart, and it was settled at that place. But now listen, you don't have to have a piece of carpet. <laughs> you, you don't have to know it was on December 1st, 1997 or whatever calendar day. You don't have to know what day of the week or what time of day. But you better know for sure that there was a moment in time when you accepted Christ as your Savior. I remember hearing Betty Butterworth one time, Granny Butterworth, saying she's testifying. And she said, I don't know when it was, but I know it happened. And I think that's all right. You don't have to know every single detail, but you better know there's a place where you gave your heart and life to Christ. But the point at which this deliverance was made effectual was made real, we should say it that way. The point when it was afforded and allowed to us was the point of Calvary. And I want to give you three simple thoughts about this before we move on. Let me say that in Jesus delivering us from so great a death, we deserved to die and go to hell. We were sinners lost and undone. We had a debt we could not pay. And by the way, you don't have to agree with that for it to be so. You don't have to agree with that for it to be so. Some of you all have mortgages. I have a mortgage. And listen, I, I could write my mortgage company and say, I'm sorry, I just, I just do not accept what you say about my fiscal situation. I, I look at my bank account and it doesn't look like I owe anybody any debts. Uh, I, I look at the house that I'm living in and it feels like home, so it must belong to me. But that wouldn't make a lick of difference. They have the note. Am I right? And they know I owe a debt. I don't have to believe it or not for me to owe that debt. The collection people will come to get that debt, whether I acknowledge it or realize it or accept it or believe it or am happy about it. You owed a sin debt. You were a sinner, just as I was a sinner. And as a sinner, we deserve to die and go to hell, and we owed this sin debt. It could only be paid by us dying and going to hell. The wages of sin is death. We deserved. We owed that. Jesus delivered us from that. How did He do that? Let me give you three thoughts. Let me say, number one, that He bore our sin on Calvary. 
say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I mean that sin debt that I deserve to pay, that I owed, that had my name attached to it, He took that upon Himself. Listen to what it says in Romans 4.25. Speaking of Jesus, it says, "...who was delivered for our offenses." Your sins and my sins put Jesus on the cross. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53. This is prophetic Scripture speaking of the Lamb of God. We know who the Lamb of God was because John told us. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sin of the world. And it says this in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely He, speaking of Jesus, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, that means the punishment, when, when our punishment that we deserve, the chastisement of our peace, the punishment that was necessary for you and I to be right with God was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we, that's you and me, I remember hearing a story one time of a preacher that was getting on a train and uh, he had a meeting that he had to go to and a fellow came running up and said, Preacher, I just heard you were in town. I've been under conviction. I've been lost. I need to be saved. What can you tell me? How can I be saved? And that preacher, he heard the conductor cry out, All aboard! He heard the whistle blow. He knew he had to go. He'd missed his train. So he cried back to him and he said this. He said, Read Isaiah 53, 6. The man said, well, what do I do when I read it? He said this, if you can come in on the first all and leave out on the last all, then you'll know the Lord. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What he was saying is this, if you can understand this truth that we're all sinners but that Jesus has paid the sin debt for all mankind. And you'll allow His death to stand for your death. If you'll quit trying to get to heaven through your good works or baptism or good old boy or good old girl system or whatever it is that you think is going to get you there, if you'll say, I can't do it, I'm insufficient. Listen, can I just give you some Bible? Would that be all right this morning? The Bible says, by the works of the law. Now, what's the law? The law is the Old Testament system of righteous doing. In other words, when God set a standard and said, this is what I expect, this is what righteousness is, the Bible says, by the works of the law shall no flesh, meaning us, be justified. We cannot be made right through doing good. Now, I believe in doing good. I sure believe in doing good a lot more than I believe in doing bad. Somebody say amen to that. But all the good doing that I could do cannot save me. The Bible says, by grace you say, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We ought to work for the Lord, but working can't get us to heaven. What can? We have to quit trying. <laughs> Doesn't that, that sound funny? When, did you expect to come into the house of God today and hear a preacher say, you need to quit trying? But for the lost person, that is what they need to do. They need to quit thinking they're going to get there because they're a good person or they go to church or they've been baptized or a thousand things that could be on that list. Listen, I'd run out of fingers long before I'd run out of all the excuses people use for why they're going to get to heaven and realize I'm lost. I'm one of those. Oh, we like sheep. I'm lost. And I can't save myself, but I will let Jesus take my place. I'll put on Him my sin that I cannot 
pay. Let me say, number one, that He bore our sin. Let me say, number two, in this great deliverance from so great a death, in this past deliverance, not only did He bear our sin, He bore it, but He became our sin. Now, this is important, and you don't have to believe what I'm about to say, but I think you're going to want to believe it by the time we get done with this first point, because it's sure good. Amen. Uh, The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He hath made Him to be sin. You know, something I find interesting is inevitably... The cross of Calvary is identified in the Word of God with our sin. In fact, the Bible talks over and over again how uh, that uh, cursed is the man that hangeth upon a tree. The Bible over and over again says concerning the, the mortifying of the flesh that we are to take up our cross and follow Him. And, and that signifies the mortifying of the old man, the old deeds. I find it interesting that Jesus carried the cross which presented and represented our sin up the road, up the hill to Calvary's hill. The Bible is very careful to tell us that He bore it upon His shoulders until He could bear it no longer, and He carried it up the hill of Calvary. But you know what happens to the cross? The cross is placed in the hole. Uh, Jesus is hung upon it. And that's the last we ever hear about that physical cross. You know why? Because the cross represented our sin. But when Jesus hung upon that cross, He became our sin. He became our sin. Every wicked thing you've ever done, Jesus embodied that upon the cross of Calvary. That's the reason that so many of the things that happened on Calvary happened. Don't you understand? That's the reason the Bible tells us that the whole world turned black. The darkness of our sin embodied and concentrated and manifested in that one individual upon the cross was enough to darken the sun, to turn the face of God away. He became our sin. That's the reason He cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Why did God forsake Him? He forsook Him because God is righteous, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And when Jesus became our darkness, our sin, God looked away and forsook Him. He became our sin. But let me give you a third truth, and I like this. He also buried our sin. I was reading in uh, the songbook. Some of you may have noticed I reached over and grabbed the songbook while I was sitting there because the song came to my mind. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. And then listen to what the songwriter said. Buried, He carried my sins far away. You know the gospel includes the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ? We often don't relate that when we talk to people about But the Bible, Paul said this, I deliver unto you that which also I received, the gospel. And he says that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is that important? Because it teaches us this truth, that when God uh, smote Jesus Christ, when Jesus became our sin, and when God struck Him in a righteous, holy judgment... Our sin was dealt with perpetually, definitively, and finally. It was dealt with. Jesus said, it is finished. And it has been finished. Listen to how the writer in Hebrews describes it. By the way, I think that's why it's beautiful. We don't, after the cross of Calvary, listen, Jesus is not on the cross anymore. 
The Bible tells us that He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. We have a high priest uh, which is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. He's not upon the cross anymore. He's in heaven. Where's the cross? It don't matter. It's been buried. Ah, it's been buried. Isn't it interesting that of all the important historical artifacts that exist, something like the cross has never been dug up? Well, I know every now and then somebody claims they have a, a scrap piece of metal of it. And uh, I, I'll, it's always funny to me because it's always, you know, uh, like pressure treated or something. You know, hey, man, I mean, it's always inevitably it turns out to be a fake, right? Why can't we turn up that cross? I'll tell you why. Because the followers of Jesus weren't interested in it. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Himself wasn't interested in it after He's done with it. I'll tell you something else. The reason we can't find it is because God is not interested in that cross anymore. It represented our sin and it's been dealt with. Now, I understand we still preach the cross and Jesus Christ crucified. But I'm saying that artifact, that actual physical cross that He hung upon, it's of no use anymore. Because when He hung upon it, He became our sin. And when He was done with the cross... We are done with the cross. Amen? That sin of what it is and what it embodies has been dealt with and addressed. You say, Preacher, give me a little scripture on that. Well, I'm glad you asked. Look over in Hebrews chapter number 10. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'm going to read a few verses, though. Verse number 11, the Bible says this, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, this is talking about the Old Testament system of sacrifice. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Listen to what it says. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He delivered us in that He bore our sin. He became our sin. He buried our sin. Our sin does not have to hound us if we've been saved by the grace of God. Our sin does not have to harrow us if we have been saved by the grace of God. Our sin has been dealt with upon Calvary. Jesus Christ paid the debt. His righteousness was greater than our sin, and His life was greater than death's hold. He has dealt with our sin. The Bible says this, Now, where remission of these is... There is no more offering for sin. You know why that is? God don't need it. Now, I want you to listen carefully. God wants us to live for Him. But if we're trying to work our way to heaven, you think God thinks more of your baptism certificate than He does of the blood of His own Son? If the blood of Jesus couldn't get it done, why would you think your volunteering at a charity or your being a good person or your always rewinding the tape before you return it? <laughs> That's outdated. Young people go, Huh? What? There are going to be young people go home and take a DVD and spin it around backwards before they take it back to the red box. What I'm saying is this. To assume that any of those things would be good enough to get us to heaven would be to assume that those things are greater than the sacrifice of Jesus. Because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. To claim that our good works are necessary to get us to heaven is to uh, imply two things. One, that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient. And two, that our good works are intrinsically of greater value than what Jesus did on Calvary. 
No, the fact is, He has delivered us from so great a death when He bore our sin, became our sin, and buried our sin. Let me give you a second truth this morning. Turn over to Romans chapter number 6. We'll try to hurry. I don't know how much time I'll really get. The Lord may come back. Amen. You know that's why preachers are long-winded. Right? We don't want the Lord to catch us laying down on the job. We figure we'll just preach and preach and preach. Maybe the Lord will come back. Amen? Also, a lot of times we ain't got that final point we keep telling you about. So we're hoping the Lord comes back and gets us out of this mess. I want to say a word about our present deliverance. What is God doing in the life of a believer right now? The Bible says He doth deliver us. And there are a lot of things we could have said about this. But just speaking from a spiritual perspective. Now, it's true. The Lord delivers us out of all of our afflictions and troubles. Paul talked about that. It's true that the Lord delivers us from unreasonable men, for not all men have the faith. It's true that the Lord delivers us from temptation and uh, has always given us a way of escape that we may bear it. But I think what Paul is talking about when he said he doth deliver us, because remember, he's talking about being raised from the dead, correct? It says, in God which raiseth the dead. I think he's speaking about spiritually in our life what God does to deliver us from the power of sin. In Romans chapter 6, he says a few things about this. Now, look at the first few verses of Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is part of the reason people, people try to use Romans 6 and 7 to claim that a person can lose their salvation uh, because uh, there's this perpetual struggle back and forth. But by the time you come down to Romans chapter 5, the end of it, uh, whoever is there in the courtroom with Paul is saved by God's grace. And that's why he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because grace is already present in the life of the person he's speaking of. He's talking about a saved person here. And he says, shall we continue in sin... That grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. I want to give you three things very quickly. Number one, God is delivering us from sin's brokenness. I can't tell you how many people that say, Preacher, I can't serve God. You don't know the things I've done in my life. I can't tell you the people that say to me from time to time, Preacher, I, I, I'm just unable to serve the Lord. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the things I've seen and said and done and heard and spoken. But the truth is this. That's true. You may have done those things. But never forget that Jesus Christ died in your place on Calvary. And that old man, the part of us that longs to live that way, he has been crucified with Christ i got news for you. We all come to the Lord broken. If you're afraid, well, preacher, I'm too messed up. Hey, don't worry about that. God's interested in messed up people. You know the people God can't help? The people that think that there ain't a thing wrong with them. Those are the people God can't help. Uh, the Bible says He's not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. The problem is not that we uh, oftentimes uh, think too little of ourselves. God can deal with that. The problem is when we think too much of ourselves. We all come to God broken. And God mends us and binds us and puts us back together. And He crucifies that old man and He raises us to walk in newness of life. 
Now, that's what baptism is a picture of. And it's just that, a picture, nothing more. But it is a picture of us being buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You know, we, around here we baptize by immersion. We know and believe and understand that to be scriptural. I'm not against people squirting other people or sprinkling other people or whatever or dipping other people. I mean, that, I don't have a problem. You come to camp, we got water guns and water balloons. We'll make sure some of that gets done. I don't think people that do that are bad people. I don't think that somehow them being baptized in that way makes God mad at them. But I don't believe that to be baptism. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I can give you a lot of scriptural reasons. The Bible talks about the Ethiopian eunuch, that they went straight way up out of the water, right? You can't go up out of water that you ain't down in in the first place, amen? I can talk about the fact that there is a Greek word for sprinkle in the New Testament, and the Bible uses it over and over again about our conscience being sprinkled. Uh, but that's not the word that's used for baptism. The word used for baptism is baptizo, and it literally means to immerse, but also because of the imagery and picture that Paul presents to us here in Romans 6. Buried with Him. Buried with Him. For what purpose? That we might be raised to walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus became our sin, died on Calvary, buried that sin, and when He raised, He raised victorious and perfect and sinless, just as He had been before the worlds began, just as He had been before Calvary. So you and I have been freed from the brokenness of sin. Preacher, I'm a broken person. I've made mistakes. That's all right. Jesus has dealt with those mistakes. He has delivered you from those mistakes. So there is no reason. You know, oftentimes it's a cop-out. Oftentimes it's not that we have regret about our past. It's that we have uh, apprehensions about our present and our future. We don't want to serve God. We're afraid to serve God. We think it's going to somehow disrupt our life if we serve God. Don't worry about that. That's just the devil putting that in your head. You just go ahead and ignore that. He's a liar from the beginning. You have faith in God and trust that if God loves you and saved you and brought you and bought you, then He has a plan for your life and He'll enable you to live that plan. And to be obedient to Him. It deals with sin's brokenness. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. It's common sense, right? Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once. But in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let me say, not only is He right now delivering us from the brokenness of sin, He's remaking our life. We've been saved by His grace. He's putting the pieces back together. But let me say, number two, that He delivers us right now, presently, from sin's bondage. You see, the, the thing, I said this earlier, that the lost man can't help but live in sin. That's his nature. And when a person gets saved, God does not take away the old nature, but God gives him a new nature. And oftentimes Paul talks about this. In fact, that's what he's talking about in Romans 7 when he talks about, you know, I see another law in my uh, mind warring against, or I see another law in my flesh warring against the law of my mind. He's saying that I, I want to do good, I desire to do good, I know what good is, but when I try to do good, I find myself doing wrong. He's saying there's a struggle that's within me to do right. I know what's right, but he says I cannot find how to do right. A lot of people experience this. Anybody that's saved knows what this is. 
God does not take away that old nature, but He does give you a new nature. And then you and I, we must have a choice then, right? I hear people say all the time, well, you know, religion, it's just about putting people in bondage and taking away their choices. You know how interested God is in giving you free will? So much so that He did not eradicate your old nature. He left you with it and gave you a new nature. Why? So that we might choose whether we want to love Him and serve Him and live for Him. If the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. Right? If the Son had made you free, you're free indeed. You have the choice to do right. You have the choice to do wrong. The lost person does not have the choice to do right. He may do moral things. He may do good things. But he cannot do spiritual things because he's spiritually dead. But a saved person that's been made free through Jesus Christ, that has been given a new nature, we have the choice to do what's right or what's wrong. And as such, there's times when we do what's natural to us. We live in sin. And there's times, I hope, in my life and in yours, when we choose to follow the truth of the Word of God and leading the Spirit of God and we do what's right. God is delivering us from that hold that sin has on us in as much as we will allow Him to do so. When we were lost, we had no choice. I mean, the chains were around us. The padlock was secure. The straitjacket was on. We had no choice. But now we've been given a choice. And as such, if we yield to the Lord, He will deliver us from the things that plague us concerning our sin and our life if we'll yield to Him. There's no sin that Jesus can't get victory over. Now, there may be sins we're not, that don't have the courage or gumption to yield to Him, but there's no sin He can't have victory over. He proved that at Calvary. When sin did its worst, Jesus rose from the dead. So whatever you're dealing with, God is bigger than it. And if you'll give it to Him and yield to Him, He's able to take it away from you. God's delivering us from sin's bondage. Let me give you a third thing. Not only is He delivering us from sin's brokenness and sin's bondage, but He has and is delivering us from sin's blindness. Look at what it says in verse number 15. The Bible says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. I hear people say all the time, well, I don't like doctrine. Boy, I sure do. It was the doctrine of the gospel that saved me from my sin. That form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, Paul says, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity... Even so now, yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. He says, listen, used to it was natural for you to live in sin. Now it's supernatural for you to walk in grace. You have a choice. Don't yield to the natural man. Yield to the new man, he says. Verse 20, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit, this is what I want you to notice, verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants unto God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to give you one final thought. I believe I'm done. I believe the Lord's done. But let me say this, that He is right now delivering us from sin's blindness. The lost man... And, I, and I, by the way, can I just say this? If you're hearing lost today, when I say the lost man, I don't mean that. I don't, I don't spit that through my teeth. I was just as lost as you. 
However broken you are, I was just as broken. However hell-bound that you are right now, I was just as hell-bound. The only difference between me and you is the grace of God. I'm not smarter than you. I'm not better than you. I'm not more righteous than you. I'm just saved. That's it. That's the only difference. I've been saved by God's grace. I don't, I, I don't, I feel like sometimes when preachers get up and talk about the law of thought, sometimes there's this, it's like they're spitting it through their teeth. I want you to know that I love you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. I don't, I don't consider you a second class citizen. I consider you someone that God loved enough to bankrupt heaven so that you could be saved. But the lost man, he can't see what is right, what is wrong, what is righteous, what is sin. Every man doeth that which is right in his own eyes. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. Here's, here's the little trick that the devil won't tell you. Here's the dirty little secret that the world won't let you know. The things that seem right to a lost person are going to lead them to hell just as easily as the things that seem wrong to them. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And you know, God believes that so much, He put it in the book of Proverbs twice. There's a way that seemeth right. It's not our attempts at wickedness that are filthy rags before God, Isaiah said. It's our attempts at righteousness that are filthy rags before God. I'm not talking about your worst this morning. I'm talking about your best. Your best is but filthiness. My best was and is but wicked filthiness before God. I need something greater than my best. The Bible says this. That those that are lost, their minds have been blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The lost man doesn't know what's right, what's wrong. And let me tell you something, a lost person oftentimes can't even see how broken their life is. Let me tell you something, there's people right now uh, down uh, laying in a gutter with a needle hanging out of their arm. And they'll wake up from whatever drug-induced stupor that they've been in. They'll crawl out of whatever vomit that's theirs or somebody else's. And they'll get ready and do it again tomorrow. And they can't see how it's destroying them. But you and I that have been saved by God's grace, we know how wicked that is. We know how wicked we were. And we know our eyes have been opened. Our mind has been enlightened. We've seen there's something better than the hog pen that the world won't even let us eat from. We've come back to the Father's house where there's a fatted calf, where there's a robe, where there's uh, shoes, where there's a ring, where there's a party going on. We've come back uh, so that heaven might rejoice and we might have glory in our soul. I'm saying this, we're not blind. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. Well, I think one of the greatest bluffs in this world is this idea that people don't know what sin is. i got news for you this morning. I'm not afraid to preach on sin. I'll name any sin that the Bible names. But I don't believe the problem is we don't know what sin is. I believe the problem is we like sin more than we like living right. If you've been saved by God's grace, you see, when you were, when you were in sin, you were free of righteousness, the Bible says. We just read it. You were free from righteousness. You didn't have any clue. I didn't have any clue. I knew what was morally okay. I knew what was socially acceptable. But to know what pleased God, I didn't know what pleased God. You know why? Because I didn't have faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him, the Hebrews writer said. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I'm saying this, if you're lost today, you might not even realize how lost you are. For those that have been saved, we see how ugly we were. We see the miry clay that we were in. We see how deep that pit was that He lifted us out of. He's delivered us and doth deliver us from the blindness of sin. You know, every once in a while, sin starts to look good again. Right? 
starts to look good again. And there's that time, you know, we, uh, that, that we, we want to reach for it. We, we see the, the shimmer off that fruit that we want to reach out and grab again and go off into sin. But you know, there's a difference now. When I was lost, I could do that. It didn't matter. It didn't change anything. A lost person can live in sin, and they never even realize how broken their life is. And they can live in sin and never even be unhappy. But a person that's been saved by God's grace and has been given new life in Jesus Christ, they reach out for that fruit. In their heart, there's a pain. And the Holy Ghost of God makes real and makes known to us that we've lived in sin. If you're saved by God's grace, you can't, live, you can't sin ignorantly. The, the trespass offering, that was an Old Testament thing. There ain't no trespass offering in the New Testament. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. I want to ask you something. Do you live like God has delivered you? Do you live as though God has changed your life and has delivered you? If you're here today and there's never been that time when you've accepted Christ, you're not my enemy. I'm not against you. I love you. And I've preached what I've preached today because I know it to be real and true. I've seen it in my heart and life. And, you know, if it was just me, you might call me a nut. And that's fine. I am. Amen. But this is a room full of people that you've heard this morning. Have you ever noticed when, when I'd be preaching, I'd say, Hey, we was wicked! You'd hear people go, Hey, man, that's right! Because they were wicked. When I'd preach that Jesus is greater than your sin, you'd hear people say, Hey, man! Because they know He is. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm not even asking you to believe them. But I am asking you to take the Word of God as authority and truth. And as such... Would you examine your life or allow the Lord to, and would you yield to Him your heart and your life and soul today? If you're saved already, and your life has not looked like it should have looked, you have a choice. God gives you a choice. You're free indeed. That means you're free to walk out this door, live in sin. You'll suffer the punishment, the consequences, but you're free to do so. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can make you. But if you're here today, and you know that you're lost... I want you to come down. I want you to find Christ. And if you're here today and you know you're saved, but you're living like you're lost, then why don't you make the decision today to find a place at this altar and say, Lord, I know you can and do deliver me from my sin. Would you take this away from me and yield it unto the Lord and allow Him to have and to take those things in our life that do not bring Him glory, that bring us heartache. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed,